Here is another young man who is passing a gospel hall on a Lord's Day evening. Attracted by the hearty singing, he enters. The speaker expatiates at length on John 3.16 and similar passages. He declares with such vigor that God loves everybody and points out in proof thereof that he gave his son to die for the sins of all mankind. The unsaved are urged to believe this and are told that the only thing which can now send them to hell is their unbelief. As soon as the service is over, the speaker makes for our young man and asks him if he is saved. Upon receiving a negative reply, he says, Would you not like to be here and now? Acts 16.31 is read to him, and he is asked, Will you believe? If he says yes, John 5.24 is quoted to him, and he is told that he is now eternally secure. He is welcomed into the homes of these new friends, frequents their meeting, and is addressed as brother. The above are far more than imaginary cases. We have come into personal contact with many from both classes. And what was the sequel? In the great majority of instances, the tide of emotion and enthusiasm soon subsided. The novelty quickly wore off. Attending Bible readings soon palled, and the dog returned to its vomit, and the sow to her wallowing in the mire. They were then regarded as backsliders and perhaps told, The Lord will bring you back again into the fold. And some of these man-made converts are foolish enough to believe their deceivers and assured that, once saved, saved forever. They go on their worldly way with no trepidation as to the ultimate outcome. They have been fatally deceived. And what of their deceivers? They are guilty of perverting the truth. They have cast pearls before swine. They have taken the children's bread and thrown it to the dogs. They gave to empty professors what pertained only to the regenerate. 2. It is perverted by those who fail to insist upon credible evidences of regeneration, as is the case with the above examples. The burden of proof always rests upon the one who affirms. When a person avers that he is a Christian, that averment does not make him one. And if he be mistaken, it certainly is not kindness on my part to confirm him in a delusion. A church is weakened spiritually in proportion to the number of its unregenerate members. Regeneration is a supernatural work of grace, and therefore it is a great insult to the Holy Spirit to imagine that there is not a radical difference between one who has been miraculously quickened by him and one who is dead in trespasses and sins, between one who is indwelt by him and one in whom Satan is working. Ephesians 2, 2. Not until we see clear evidence that a supernatural work of grace has been wrought in a soul are we justified in regarding him as a brother in Christ. The tree is known by the fruits it bears. Good fruit must be manifested on its branches ere we can identify it as a good tree. 
We will not enter into a labored attempt to describe at length the principal birthmarks of a Christian. Instead, we will mention some things which, if they be absent, indicate that the root of the matter, Job 19.28, is not in the person. One who regards sin lightly, who thinks nothing of breaking a promise, who is careless in the performance of temporal duties, who gives no sign of a tender conscience, which is exercised over what are commonly called trifles, lacks the one thing needful. A person who is vain and self-important, who pushes to the fore seeking the notice of others, who parades his fancied knowledge and attainments, has not learned of him who is meek and lowly in heart, one who is hypersensitive, who is deeply hurt if someone slights her, who resents the word of reproof, no matter how kindly spoken, betrays the lack of a humble and teachable spirit, one who frets over disappointment, murmurs each time his will is crossed, and rebels against the dispensations of providence, exhibits a will which has not been divinely subdued. That a person belongs to some evangelical church or assembly and is regular in his attendance there is no proof that he is a member of the church which is Christ's mystical body. That a person goes about with a Bible in his hand is no guarantee that the divine law is within his heart. Though he may talk freely and fluently about spiritual things, of what worth is it if they do not regulate his daily walk? One who is dishonest in business, undutiful in the home, thoughtless of others, censorious and unmerciful, has no title to be regarded as a new creature in Christ Jesus, no matter how saintly his pose be on the Sabbath day. When the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Christ's forerunner to be baptized of him, he said, Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. Matthew 3, 8 I must first see some signs of godly sorrow for sin, some manifestations of a change of heart, some tokens of a transformed life. So we must demand the evidences of regeneration before we are justified in crediting a Christian profession. Otherwise, we endorse what is false and bolster up one in his self-deceit. 3. It is perverted by those who sever the cause from its necessary effect. The cause of the believer's perseverance is one and indivisible, for it is divine and nothing whatever of the creature is mingled with it. Yet, to our apprehension at least, it appears as a compound one, and we may view its component parts separately. The unchanging love, the immutable purpose, the everlasting covenant and the invincible power of God are conjoint elements in making the saint infallibly secure. But each of those elements is active and brings forth a fruit after its own kind. God's love is not confined to the divine bosom, but is shed abroad in the hearts of his people by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5, from whence it flows forth again unto its giver. We love him because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. 
Our love is indeed feeble and fluctuating, yet it exists and cannot be quenched, so that we can say with Peter, Thou knowest that I love thee. I know my sheep, and though imperfectly, am known of mine. John 10:14 shows the response made. The preacher who has much to say upon the love of God and little or nothing about the believer's love to him is partial and fails in his duty. How can I ascertain that I am an object of God's love but by discovering the manifest effects of his love being shed abroad in my heart? If any man love God, the same is known of God. 1 Corinthians 8, 3 All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8:28. It is by their love for him they give proof they are the subjects of his effectual call. And how is genuine love for God to be identified? First, by its eminency. God is loved above all others, so as he has no rival in the soul. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Psalm 73:25. All things give way to His love. Because Thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise Thee. Psalm 63, 3 The real Christian is content to do and suffer anything rather than lose God's favor, for that is His all. Second, true love for God may be recognized by its component parts. Repentance is a mourning love because of the wrongs done its beloved and the loss accruing to ourselves. Faith is a receptive love, thankfully accepting Christ and all his benefits. Obedience is a pleasing love, seeking to honor and glorify the one who has set his heart upon me. Filial fear is a restraining love which prevents me offending him whom I esteem above all others. Hope is love expecting, anticipating the time when there shall be nothing to come between my soul and him. Communion is love, finding satisfaction in its object. All true piety is the expression and outflow of love to God and those who bear his image. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness is love desiring more of God and his holiness. Joy is the exuberance of love, delighting itself in its all-sufficient portion. Patience is love waiting for God to make good his promise, moving us to endure the trials of the way until he comes to our relief. Love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 Third, real love for God expresses itself in obedience. Where there is genuine love for God, it will be our chief concern to please Him and fulfill His will. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. John 14, 21 
This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. 1 John 5, 3. Inasmuch as it is the love of an inferior to a superior, it must show itself in a respectful subjection in the performance of duty. God returneth love with love. I love them that love me. Proverbs 8:17 and compare John 14:21. A Christian is rewarded as a lover rather than as a servant, not as doing work, but as doing work out of love. Manton. If we love God, we shall do his bidding, promote his interests, seek his glory. And this not sporadically, but uniformly and constantly, not in being devout at certain set times and the observance of the Lord's Supper, but respecting His authority in all the details of our daily lives. Only thus does love perform its function and fulfill its design. Whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected, attains its proper goal. Hereby know we that we are in him. 1 John 2, 5 From what has been pointed out in the last three paragraphs, it is clear that those who dwell upon the love of God for his people to the virtual exclusion of their love for him do pervert the truth of the security of the saints as the individual who persuades himself that he is the object of God's love without producing the fruit of his love for him is treading on very dangerous ground. This divorcing of the necessary effect from its cause might be demonstrated just as conclusively of the other elements or parts. But because we entered into so much detail with the first, we will barely state the other three. The immutability of God's purpose to conduct his elect to heaven must not be considered as a thing apart. The means have been predestinated as much as the end, and they who despise the means perish. The very term covenant signifies a compact entered into by two or more persons, wherein terms are prescribed and rewards promised. Nowhere has God promised covenant blessings to those who comply not with covenant stipulations. Nor have I any warrant to believe the saving power of God is working in me unless I am expressly proving the sufficiency of His grace. 4. It is perverted by those who lose the balance of truth between divine preservation and Christian perseverance. We may think it vastly more honoring unto God to write or say ten times as much about his sovereignty as we do upon man's responsibility. But that is only a vain attempt to be wise above what is written, and therefore is to display our own presumption and folly. We may attempt to excuse our failure by declaring it is a difficult matter to present the divine supremacy and human accountability in their due proportions, but with the word of God in our hands it will avail us nothing. The business of God's servant is not only to contend earnestly for the faith, but to set forth the truth in its scriptural proportions. 
far more error consists in misrepresenting and distorting the truth than in expressly repudiating it. Professing Christians are not deceived by an avowed infidel or atheist, but are taken in by men who quote and requote certain portions of holy writ, but are silent upon all the passages which clash with their lopsided views. Just as we may dwell so much upon the deity of Christ as to lose sight of the reality of his humanity, so we may become so occupied with God's keeping of his people as to overlook those verses where the Christian is bidden to keep himself. The incarnation in no wise changed or modified the fact that Christ was none other than Emmanuel, tabernacling among men, that God was manifest in flesh. Nevertheless we read, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Hebrews 2.17 And again, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Luke 2.51 The theanthropic person or the mediator is grossly caricatured if either his Godhead or manhood be omitted from consideration. Whatever difficulty it may involve to our finite minds, whatever mystery which transcends our grasp, yet we must hold fast to the fact that the child born, the son given, was the mighty God. Isaiah 9, 6. Nor must we suffer the truth of God's garrisoning of his people to crowd out the necessity of their discharging their responsibility. It is perfectly true there is a danger on the other side and that we need to be on our guard against erring in the opposite direction. Some have done so. There are those who consider the humanity of Christ could not be true humanity in the real sense of that word unless it were peccable, arguing that his temptation was nothing more than a meaningless show unless he was capable of yielding to Satan's attacks. One error leads to another. If the last Adam met the devil on the same plane as did the first Adam, simply as a sinless man, and if his victory, as well as all his wondrous works, is to be attributed solely to the power of the Holy Spirit, then it follows that the exercise of his divine prerogatives and attributes were entirely suspended during the years of his humiliation. Hence we find that those who hold this fantastic view endorse the kenosis theory, interpreting the made himself of no reputation or who emptied himself of Philippians 2.7 as the temporary setting aside of his omniscience and omnipotence. Contending for Christian perseverance no more warrants the repudiation of divine preservation than insisting on the true manhood of Christ justifies the impugning of his godhood. 
both must be held fast. On the one hand, reasoning must be bridled by refusing to go one step further than Scripture goes. On the other hand, faith must be freely exercised, receiving all that God has revealed thereon. That which is central in Philippians 2, 5 through 7, is the position Christ entered and the character in which he appeared. He who was in the form of God and deemed it not robbery to be equal with God, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He laid aside the robes of his incomprehensible glory, divesting himself of his incommunicable honors, and assumed the mediatorial office instead of continuing to act as the universal sovereign. He descended into the sphere of servitude, yet without the slightest injury to his Godhead. There was a voluntary abnegation of the exercise of full dominion and sovereignty though he still remained the Lord of glory, 1 Corinthians 2, 8. He became obedient unto death, but he did not become either feeble or fallible. He was and is both perfect and the mighty God. As the person of the God-man mediator is falsified, if either his Godhead or manhood be denied or perverted, if either be practically ignored, so it is with the security of the saints when either their divine preservation or their own perseverance is repudiated or perverted, if either be emphasized to the virtual exclusion of the other. Both must be maintained in their due proportions. Scripture designates our Savior the true God, 1 John 5.20, yet it also speaks of him as the man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. Again and again, he is denominated the Son of Man, yet Thomas owned him as my Lord and my God. So too the psalmist affirmed, He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Psalm 121, 3, 7, and 8. Nevertheless, he also declared... By the word of thy lips I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. Psalm 17.4 And again, I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have kept myself from mine iniquity. Psalm 18.21 and 23 Jude exhorts believers, Keep yourself in the love of God, and then speaks of him that is able to keep you from falling. Verses 21 and 24 the one complements and not contradicts the other. 5. It is perverted by those who divorce the purpose of God from the means through which it is accomplished. God has purposed the eternal felicity of his people, and that purpose is certain of full fruition. Nevertheless, it is not effected without the use of means on their part, 
any more than a harvest is obtained and secured apart from human industry and persevering diligence. God has made promise to his saints that bread shall be given them and their water shall be sure. Isaiah 33:16. But that does not exempt them from the discharge of their duty or provide them with an indulgence to take their ease. The Lord gave a plentiful supply of manna from heaven, but the Israelites had to get up early and gather it each morning, for it melted when the sun shone on it. So his people are now required to labor for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life. John 6, 27. Promises of divine preservation are not made to sluggards and idlers, but those called unto the use of means for the establishing of their souls in the practice of obedience. Those promises are not given to promote idleness, but are so many encouragements to the diligent assurances that sincere endeavors shall have a successful issue. God has purposed to preserve believers in holiness and not in wickedness. His promises are made to those who strive against a sin and mourn over it, not to those who take their full thereof and delight therein. If I presume upon God's goodness and count upon His shielding me when I deliberately run into the place of temptation, then I shall be justly left to reap as I have sown. It is Satan who tempts souls to recklessness and to the perverting of the divine promises. This is clear from the attack which he made upon the Savior. When he bade him cast himself from the pinnacle of the temple and to rely upon the angels to preserve him from harm, it was an urging him to presume upon the end by disdaining the means. Our Lord stopped his mouth by pointing out that, notwithstanding his assurance from God and of his faithfulness concerning the end, yet scripture requires that the means tending to that end be employed, the neglect of which is a sinful tempting of God. If I deliberately drink deadly poison, I have no ground for concluding that prayer will deliver me from its fatal effects. The divine preservation of the saints no more renders their own activities, constant care, and exertions superfluous than does God's gift of breath make it unnecessary for us to breathe. It is their own preservation in faith and holiness which is the very thing made certain. They themselves, therefore, must live by faith and in the practice of holiness, for they cannot persevere in any other way than by watching and praying, carefully avoiding the snares of Satan and the seductions of the world, resisting and mortifying the lusts of the flesh, working out their own salvation with fear and trembling. To neglect those duties to follow a contrary course is to draw back unto perdition and not to believe to the saving of the soul. Hebrews 10.39 He who argues that since his perseverance in faith and holiness is assured he needs exercise no concern about it or trouble to do anything toward it 
is not only guilty of a palpable contradiction, but gives proof that he is a stranger to regeneration and has neither part nor lot in the matter. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Psalm 119.35 is the cry of the renewed. 6. It is perverted by those who deny the truth of Christian responsibility. In this section, we shall turn away from the mongrel Calvinists to consider a serious defect on the part of hyper-Calvinists or as some prefer to call them, fatalists. These people not only repudiate the general offer of the gospel, arguing that it is a virtual denial of man's spiritual impotency to call upon the unregenerate to savingly repent and believe, but they are also woefully remiss in exhorting believers unto the performance of Christian duties. Their favorite text is, Without me ye can do nothing, but they are silent upon, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Philippians 4.13 They delight to quote the promises wherein God declares, I will and I shall, but they ignore those verses which contain the qualifying, if ye, John 8.31, and if we, Hebrews 3.6. They are sound and strong in the truth of God's preservation of his people, but they are weak and unsound on the correlative truth of the saints' perseverance. They say much about the power and operations of the Holy Spirit, but very little on the method he employs or the means and motives he makes use of. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Romans 8:14. He does not compel, but inclines. It is not by the use of physical power, but by the employment of moral suasion and sweet inducements that he leads for he deals with the saints not as stocks and stones, but as rational entities. I will instruct thee, and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Psalm 32, 8. The meaning of that is more apparent from the contrast presented in the next verse. Be ye not as the horse, rushing where it should not, or as the mule, stubbornly refusing to go where it should, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle. God does not drive his children like unintelligent animals, but guides by enlightening their minds, directing their inclinations, moving their wills. God led Israel across the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, but they had to respond thereto to follow it. So the good shepherd goes before his sheep, and they follow him. It is true, blessedly true, that God draws, yet that drawing is not a mechanical one, as though we were machines, but a moral one, in keeping with our nature and constitution. Beautifully is this expressed in Hosea 11.4. I drew them with cords as a man, with bands of love. 
every moral virtue, every spiritual grace is appealed to and called into action. There is perfect love and gracious care on God's part toward us. There is the intelligence of the faith and response of love on our part toward Him, and thereby He keeps us in the way. Blessed and wondrous indeed is the interworking of divine grace and the believer's responsibility. All the affections of the new creature are wrought upon by the Holy Spirit. He draws out our love by setting before us God's love. We love Him because He first loved us. But we do love Him. We are not passive, nor is love inactive. He quickens our desires and revives our assurance, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He brings into view the prize of the high calling, and we press toward the mark, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Philippians 3:13 and 14. It is very much like a skilled musician and a harp. As his fingers touch its strings, they produce melodious sounds. God works in us and produces the beauty of his holiness. But how? By setting before our minds weighty considerations and powerful motives and causing us to respond thereto. By giving us a tender conscience which is sensitive to his still small voice. By appealing to every motive power in us. Fear, desire, love, hatred, hope, ambition. God preserves his saints, not as he does the mountain pine which is enabled to withstand the storm without its own concurrence, but by calling into exercise and act the principle that was imparted to them at the new birth. There is the working of divine grace first, and then the outflow of Christian energy. God works in His people both to will and to do of His good pleasure, and they work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. And it is the office of God's servants to be used as instruments in the hands of the Spirit. It is their task to enforce the responsibility of the saints to admonish slothfulness, to warn against apostasy, to call on to the use of means and the performance of duty. If the hyper-Calvinist preacher compares the method he follows with the policy pursued by the apostles, he should quickly perceive the vast difference there is between them. True, the apostles gave attention to doctrinal instruction, but they also devoted themselves to exhortation and expostulation. True, they magnified the free and sovereign grace of God and were careful to set the crown of glory upon the one to whom alone it belonged. Yet they were far from addressing their hearers as so many paralytics or creatures who must lie impotent till the waters be moved. No, they said, let us not sleep as others do. First Thessalonians 5, 6, but awake to right righteousness and sin not. First Corinthians fifteen thirty four. They bade them run with patience the race that is set before us. 
Hebrews 12, too, and to not sit down and mope and hug their miseries. They called upon them to resist the devil, James 4, 7, not take the attitude they were helpless in the matter. They gave direction, keep yourselves from idols, 1 John 5:21, and did not at once negative it by adding, but you are unable to do so. When the apostle said, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Second Peter 1.13 He was not usurping the prerogative of the Spirit, but was enforcing the responsibility of the saints. 7. It is perverted by those who use the doctrine of justification to crowd out the companion doctrine of sanctification. Though they are inseparably connected, yet they may be and should be considered singly and distinctly. Under the law, the ablutions and oblations, the washings and sacrifices went together, and justification and sanctification are blessings which must not be disjointed. God never bestows the one without the other, yet we have no means of knowing we have received the former apart from the evidences of the latter. Justification refers to the relative or legal change which takes place in the status of God's people. Sanctification to the real and experimental change which takes place in their state. A change which is begun at the new birth, developed during the course of their earthly pilgrimage, and is made perfect in heaven. The one gives the believer a title to heaven, the other a meetness for the inheritance of the saints in light. The former clears him from the guilt of sin, the latter cleanses from sin's defilement. In sanctification, something is actually imparted to the believer, whereas in justification, it is only imputed. Justification is based entirely on the work which Christ wrought for his people, but sanctification is principally a work wrought in them. By our fall in Adam, we not only lost the favor of God, but also the purity of our nature. And therefore, we need to be both reconciled to God and renewed in our inner man. For without personal holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 12:14. As he which hath called you is holy... So be ye holy in all manner of conversation, behavior, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. God's nature is such that unless we be sanctified, there can be no intercourse between Him and us. But can persons be sinful and holy at one and the same time? Genuine Christians discover so much carnality, filth, and vileness in themselves that they find it almost impossible to be assured they are holy. 
nor is this difficulty solved as in justification by recognizing that though completely unholy in ourselves, we are holy in Christ. For Scripture teaches that those who are sanctified by God are holy in themselves, though the evil nature has not been removed from them. None but the pure in heart will ever see God. Matthew 5, 8. There must be that renovation of soul whereby our minds, affections, and wills are brought into harmony with God. There must be that impartial compliance with the revealed will of God and abstinence from evil which issues from faith and love. There must be that directing of all our actions to the glory of God by Jesus Christ according to the gospel. There must be a spirit of holiness working within the believer's heart so as to sanctify his outward actions if they are to be acceptable unto him in whom there is no darkness. True, there is perfect holiness in Christ for the believer, but there must also be a holy nature received from him. There are some who appear to delight in the imputed obedience of Christ, who make little or no concern about personal holiness. They have much to say about being arrayed in the garments of salvation and covered with the robe of righteousness, Isaiah 61.10, who give no evidence that they are clothed with humility, 1 Peter 5.4, or that they have put on bells of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another, Colossians 3.12. How many there are today who suppose that if they have trusted in Christ, all is sure to be well with them at the last even though they are not personally holy. Under the pretense of honoring faith, Satan as an angel of light has deceived and is now deceiving multitudes of souls. When their faith is examined and tested, what is it worth? Nothing at all so far as ensuring an entrance into heaven is concerned it is a powerless a lifeless a fruitless thing the faith of god's elect is unto the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness titus 1 1 it is a faith which purifieth the heart acts 15 9 and it grieves over all impurity it is a faith which produces an unquestioning obedience hebrews 11 8 they therefore do but delude themselves who suppose they are daily drawing nearer to heaven while they are following those courses which lead only to hell he who thinks to come to the enjoyment of God without being personally holy makes him out to be an unholy God and puts the highest indignity upon him. The genuineness of saving faith is only proved as it bears the blossoms of experimental godliness and the fruit of true piety. 
Sanctification consists of receiving a holy nature from Christ and being indwelt by the Spirit so that the body becomes his temple set apart unto God. By the Spirit giving me vital union with the Holy One, I am sanctified in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Where there is life, there is growth. And even when growth ceases, there is a development and maturing of what has grown. There is a living principle, a moral quality communicated at the new birth and under sanctification. It is drawn out into action and exercised in living unto God. In regeneration, the Spirit imparts saving grace. In sanctification, he strengthens and develops it. The one is a birth, the other a growth. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.